Hello and welcome to another Dairy Dialogue podcast. It's number 46, which if that was the boss in Glasgow, goes from Easter House to Castle Milk. There's a dairy connection to everything. I was going to use the number 46 bus in London, but that only goes from Lancaster Gate to St. Bartholomew's Hospital, so really not much of a dairy connection there. It does stop at the Eastman Dental Hospital and Swiss Cottage, as opposed to Swiss Cheese, but I thought that was a bit of a stretch. Anyway, today's Dairy Dialogue podcast has nothing to do with bosses, maybe another time. I'm Jim Cornell, editor of Dairy Reporter, and on this week's show, in spite of the introduction that sounds like I planned this stuff, it only came together at the last minute instead of in advance, with three late interviews. Not good for the panic levels, but we got there, so we do have three interviews for you. So with us this week, we have three guests, Simon Evans, health and safety leader at Parker Bioscience Filtration, talking about their expanded facilities in the UK, Tashia Malakasis, Belchevre CEO on the Artisan Goat Cheese Company's latest launch, and Liam Fenton from INTL FC Stone, who, as well as providing us with the weekly dairy market update, also tells us about the company's upcoming conference in Dublin. A pretty uneventful week here in rural Scotland. Kids are back in school. Not sure where those seven weeks went. To them it seems like forever, but as you get older, seven weeks seems a bit like seven minutes. Except on this podcast. It has been a busy week for Dairy News though, so time to recap some of the headlines for you so you can head over to dairyreporter.com and read some, or indeed all of them. I feel a bit like I did when I read the international news when I was on radio all those years ago having to learn how to pronounce place names I'd never heard of. No such problem with the place names this week, however. We've had a story on the impact economically of Wisconsin's dairy industry on the state. I did a video of my trip to a camel farm in Dubai with Camelicious, although I didn't use any of the pictures of me being kissed by one of the camels, although maybe I should have. We had an article on the second Dairy Experience Forum, Nutricia has launched Carry Care toddler sheep milk. Hochdorf in Switzerland said it is facing a serious crisis after publishing its first half results. And in the US, Beth featured some back-to-school launches over there. And we also looked at how dairy companies in the US are looking for a deal with Japan to be completed to help out their dairy industry. The Museum of Ice Cream has returned to New York City. Hopefully it doesn't melt. Dillaval has launched a new milking cluster and there are plenty more articles to check out. So let's get things moving first with Parker Bioscience Filtration, which has unveiled brand new expanded facilities at its UK site after the completion of a major phased investment program. And to tell us more about it is someone who was very involved with those changes, Simon Evans. So we had a, it's an existing facility. So we're existing facility in, uh, in Burley in the northeast. And uh, we've had a multi-million pound renovation project to basically get the, what was, we have two buildings, an operations building and, a, and an office and labs building. So we had a multi-million pound project to, to completely gut the, uh, the front building and basically 
cleared it out um, and we've put in new conferencing facilities, new office, new furniture, new meeting rooms, uh, new state-of-the-art labs and then we went live with the with the moving date April 2019 moving into the uh, into the facility and, and we're probably the envy of all Parker locations at the moment in terms of a nice facility that's but that is state of the art, you know, compared to where we were in the probably 1970s style um, building, to something that's uh, the state of the art, fully linked up with conferencing facilities and, and labs, um, and we've increased the footprint of, of our offices to allow more people. If 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 and when we expand and grow, we can you know we can bring more people in as well, and it's it's a fantastic uh, it's a fantastic facility. And what was the the reasoning behind doing that? Was it because the old one was old, or because you just needed more space for expansion? A couple of things, really. More, it was old, so it was old, and it was the markets. You know, the markets we operate in, and you know where we want to be to bring in customers and you know potential customers and suppliers and visitors. It was it wasn't the best. It's become state of the art. It's, it's you know it's portraying of where we are and where we want to be as as a business. It's creating creating an environment that, that matches where we want to be and, and, and our brand as well. And does it mean more jobs or potentially new jobs or just that you have capacity for that? Should you grow? Um, should we grow? Yes. Yeah. So should we grow? It has it has the it now has that capability to you know to expand. You know, and it was um, you know we we look to grow. We're looking to grow the business and to grow the business. You know, we'll need to be producing more more products, we'll need more people and, and we have that we have that, you know, we're sort of future proofing for the next the next um you know, the next ten years. And you know, and we want to expand our capabilities on, on the technical support, you know, piece as well. And that's that's allowing us to, you know, to attract people into the into the environment and give them those those facilities and, and also help help us develop the new our new products as well. It's future proofing and when we do, as we expand, it's not, oh, well, what are we going to do? Because we haven't got the space. We now have the space to, you know, to expand over the next uh, the next few years. And for the area, it gives everybody a bit of security, you know, because the business isn't going to invest multi-million pound on, on something that isn't, doesn't have a future or doesn't have, doesn't have a, a pathway to grow. So 200 plus employees that we have on site, you know, it gives them a bit of sort of security and a bit of future vision as well. And it helps with our customer base. It helps them see that we're, you know, we're committed and we, you know, we have a, we have a facility that we can help support them and, and help them with their developments and their queries and questions and, and support as we go through as well. I think in October we've got a big customer visit exhibition on for two days in October as well. So we in our conference room we're having about a hundred people coming in and you know and showcasing in the facility um to them as well. And I know you do quite a lot with the dairy industry. Yes, yes. So we have certainly our technical support group. They visit customers, dairy customers on a on a regular basis, helping them support in their processes. We get the customers coming to site now, and we we're proud to bring them to site and to show them the facility. It's one of our key markets. Um, it's one of our three markets, and you know we support them by visits and also on on site. And we've had, I suppose, 50 years really of, of support in the dairy the dairy market as well in, in sterile gas um, and integrity testing. 
And of course, you're a very big company globally. I assume you deal with dairy companies around the world. Yeah, so UK, Europe, um, we also support. We have you know, we have a sister business in the US as well, so we support in dairy manufacturers worldwide, yes. One of the team went out in Chile um, not so long ago. And now we have, we, with the labs and the expansion, we have the facility to do a lot more testing in-house as well and bring, you know, bring people in and bring products in to have the capability to do you know the testing on site as well as at, at customer um, facilities and, and provide that independent test facilities as well. And I suppose that also means that with the new facilities, you can communicate with companies directly from your lab to them. You don't necessarily have to go there. People can get Skype. We can be in a room. We can even you know we can even have a camera. We can walk around a process with a with a camera, and so they can somebody on the other side of the world in a different time zone can see the process or you know can see the facility. Even have a meeting, so we're reducing the need, I suppose, to travel as well, using the technology to improve our carbon footprint, I suppose, as well. Next, we go to Alabama to talk about goat cream cheese. And to share, Malakasis, CEO of Belle Chevre, tells us the fascinating story of how she came to be making goat cheese products, as well as about their latest launches. Belle Chevre was started 30 years ago. Been in business and been making French-style roughly. Um, I say roughly because not the, the base recipe is for sure a French-style, but there's moderations on that. But French-style goat's milk cheeses in North Alabama. People don't typically think about Alabama for cheese, um, much less French-style goat's milk cheeses for chefs. But the woman who started the business, Liz Parnell, had traveled all over the world and loved goat cheeses and actually sort of quite back and found a, a goat dairy that was for sale and then partnered with the dairy and started making cheeses and started winning awards and from American Cheese Society and all kinds of attention, the, you know, the products were served at the White House and, and sold in the cache cheese shops in the, in the country and, and, again, had all this uh, recognition from awards and such. And I got involved in the business when I found the cheese in Dean and DeLuca in Manhattan. So for people who aren't familiar with Dean and DeLuca, a uh, high-end gourmet market that was you know, one of the, I guess, the flagships for sort of creating these gourmet markets to be kind of mainstream. So I was um, spent 15 years in, in tech and really wanted to do something a little bit different with my life and took a sabbatical and went to culinary school. And while I was in New York in culinary school, I happened into this uh, market, Dina DeLuca in New York, and found this cheese, Belchev which is made in my home state of Alabama. And, and that's really the genesis of how I got involved with the, with the business. Got really curious about the products and about the company. And, you know, Alabama's known for a lot of things. Um, not typically on the culinary front, certainly not for fine cheeses necessarily, barbecue and gold peanuts for sure. So called on uh, Miss Parnell and wanted to know more about the business. I didn't at the time know that I ended up was going to end up becoming a cheesemaker and buying the business, but that's exactly what happened. I ended up in 2006 back in, in the tech field, learning from culinary school that I didn't want to be a chef, so I went back into the industry that I was in, and we had just sold a company, and I um, I, I called Liz, and I said, I, you know, I'm, I'm 
this is what I want to do. I'm completely enamored with the company and with the products and I want to learn more. And so I quit my job in Philadelphia and came home and worked for her for free for six months and learned the art of cheese making, which I probably won't be the first person to tell you that it's really um, the art of cheese making. It's a glorified cleaning job. But ended up six months later acquiring the business, and that was in 2007. So voila, I'm a cheese maker. And um, one of the first things that I set out to do really with the business, or one of the first aspects, I guess, that was of great importance to me was to create a brand that was accessible and approachable. So at the time, this was 12 years ago, you know, goat cheeses in Alabama were were sort of a, of a, a rarity. I don't mean just in production, but even in terms of being able to, to find them. So if you really wanted fine cheeses, you might have to end up in, in the, you know, the larger cities in these kind of cachet um, cheese shops or, or gourmet markets. And I wanted to create a brand that would be accessible and approachable and one where people from Alabama might not have to go to leave their home state to find those. Now, 12 years ago, to fast forward to today, all kinds of, you know, the cheese market in the United States has changed quite a bit. And we, we have American artisans are creating really amazing cheeses now, sort of the same thing that's happened with American wines and even beers. The European market's quite different. Countries of origin with these cheeses being made for thousands of years. Same thing with the wines or beers. And, and now we're still comfortable in saying that Americans are taking some of those time-honored traditions and recipes and doing something a little bit unique and different and uniquely, let's say, American with those. The rebranding, again, to, to make those approachable, I think, has been has been very successful for us, and not only in those cashier cheese shops in the country now, but in everyday sort of general markets like, you know, Piggly Wiggly or Kroger's or Publix. And then along with that rebranding was to create product lines that were, again, more in, in line with making a, um, a shove more every day. You know, 20 years ago, or even when I got involved with the business 12 years ago, a chef might have been seen or have the impression of being at a product that would be used on a cheese plate for a special occasion, your wine and cheese party that you might have once a year. That's certainly not the case in a lot of European countries. These are provincial products made and, you know, made on farms and made by in provincial settings. Um, and used in an everyday way, say, let's having these cheeses for breakfast, but that wasn't necessarily the case here. So that, those have been two of the main goals that I, I guess, took over at Belshev, and we have launched new products and lines that are in keeping with those two things. Quite the journey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure, <laughs> for sure. I would imagine that over the years since you've been involved, the industry has changed somewhat or quite considerably given people being more involved nowadays in sort of local diets and healthier diets less packaging yeah. more sustainability yeah. i'm sure it's it's really changed yeah for sure so you have this you have that local drive for sure and you have um the health drive and things that are less processed and the American diet was full of processed foods. And I'm, it's, it's been a really great time for me to be in the food industry or any really craft maker now because I would say the world palate, but especially the American palate, is, is more interested in um, less processed 
understanding the you know the craft and the, and the maker and wanting healthier food than ever. I was actually going to ask you about that. I would imagine that when you first started out, goat cheese and Alabama probably raised quite a few eyebrows, but probably now not so much. Yeah, absolutely. I would agree with that 100%. So trying to have a conversation about a goat cheese for, you know, let's just say for breakfast would have done something that would be really foreign. And now I think with the not just the local movement or, or health food movement or sustainability, but also our palates are expanding. The world is smaller. Um, Americans want to explore and find um, products that are not just part of their previous everyday diet. So the, I guess, the openness to um, exploring foods that are a little bit different is, is certainly more open. With goat cheese as well and, and goat cream cheese, is that a market that um, could do with some expansion or how's, how is that niche at the moment? So there's a little bit of a journey with that, um, with our cream cheese products too, is, um, you know, one of our legacy products is the fromage blanc, which is the super fresh, creamy cheese. So, you know, we separate the curds from the whey, we salt it lightly and it's done, no age. So almost, you know, true French fromage blanc might be as wet almost as a, you know, as a sour cream. And it's one of our, it's one of our best products and, and people love it, but trying to explain that, what a fromage blanc was to an American um, palate. And then one of the things that I would do is I would, you know, would talk to people about it. You know, one of the things that the French might do with a fromage blanc is take it and stir in something sweet and, and have that have that for breakfast, some honey or preserves or fruit. So we launched a line of what we call breakfast cheeses. So, which is kind of a concept product, got lots of attention, won all kinds of awards nationally and internationally and wonderful recognition and resonated with people. But I was still trying to have to explain what a breakfast cheese was. And I'm like, well, you use it the same way you would a cream cheese, right? It's just, in fact, it meets the, you know, the USDA definition of a cream cheese. And so I'm still having this conversation from Flamage Blanc to breakfast cheese and trying to explain it. And I had someone tell me one day, well, why don't you just call it a cream cheese? So I thought, well, I thought it was being really clever by naming these products breakfast cheese. So we just relaunched these um, under the, I guess, the nomenclature of cream cheeses. And the journey around that, Jim, I think is really fascinating because when you look at the dairy aisle in the, um, in the American markets anyway, there's lots of healthy alternatives to traditional dairy, right? So you've got um, all kinds of milk alternatives and, and even so that if you look at what happened with Greek yogurt in the American market, so if you have something that's just a little bit healthier, um, the American consumer is very open to that. But there was one, this one section in the dairy case that really hadn't had much innovation or change or even a healthy alternative. What you find is that traditional cream cheese in the United States is really heavy with preservatives and additives and stabilizers, and there's not a whole lot of flavor in it. So it's a lot of mouthfeel, not much flavor. And again, no, there's really, there was not any healthy alternatives to a better milk source or an alternative milk source. So us playing now in the cream cheese space is the, you know, it's really resonating with it, with consumers and with buyers who want to offer their consumers an, an alternative. So 
that transition and that journey that I've just just walked you through, it's really been um, one of learning for me. And also, I think um, it's a really good time for us to be in this space when American consumers are looking for some something that might be a better choice for them. Has social media played a big role in promoting this? Yeah, we, we um, for sure rely on social media. And I think we have a little bit of an alternative approach to um, and a really playful approach with our branding and, and messaging. And uh, I think that that has resonated with consumers. And I think if, if you let the market know that you have some, again, a product that they they use regularly on a daily basis it's something that's a little bit better for them and a brand that's trusted we you know we're a i would say a burgeoning brand or a challenger brand and we're you know we're small and and the craft is really craft with a c is really important to us and all of that resonates with our consumers so yes i would say that um the, the way that we message and the way that we interact with our consumers and social media is certainly important yeah, I guess when you're trying to redefine or reshape an entire category, it's done in much different ways than it would have been 25 years ago before we had any of these tools at our disposal. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so I think that one of the reasons for the rise in brands that can challenge some of the giants is because, number one, there's a way to reach out to the American, you know, to your audience, not just American, the global audience. And you can do it inexpensively, and you have a, a market that really, really wants to support something that's um, not just the traditional giant of, of branding. So it's a really good time if you if you have products and you want to reach a market because you can do it in a way that's non-traditional and affordable and very, very effective. And you have the new launch as well of the pumpkin flavor. How did that come about? Yeah, we actually have three new flavors that we've okay. just launched. So we have, traditionally our flavors have been of the cream cheeses from the breakfast cheese line were sweet. So we had honey, fig, cinnamon, and coffee, um, as well as the original, and not a whole lot of savory. And so we launched a garden vegetable and the the pumpkin spice, as well as the roasted red pepper. And the pumpkin spice is is so popular now for the fall. It's just a seasonal flavor, and it really, really, really works well with the flavors of the um, goat's milk cream cheese. It's been extraordinarily popular. Food is my passion, so I could come up with new product ideas every day, but choosing which ones will work best, that's the challenge. And I suppose as well as the flavors that you come up with, you also have to come up with names that resonate with consumers. Yeah, so it's so funny. Before I was in the product business, you know, I was just a consumer, right? I went to the grocery store, I bought things, I enjoyed them at home. But I didn't really think about all that has to go into getting, making a product, putting it in a package, thinking about the, you know, the branding, selling it to the store, getting it, you know, getting it into the cart, you know, like getting it home. How does it sit when it's in some stuff? Like all of the things that you have to think about, like you mentioned, not just the, you know, making the product and the flavors, but packaging it and naming it, all of those things that go into getting a product successfully to market is tremendous. And I think most of us aren't, we don't even think about it when we go to the store. But, I, but I'm, if you've been involved in it, I bet you shop in a very different way than you ever have before. But yes, there's a tremendous amount that goes into it.
And now it's time for Liam Fenton, not with his weekly update, but with some details about INTL FC Stone's EU Dairy Outlook Conference and Educational Forum, which will be held in Dublin, Ireland on September the 5th and the 6th. The event's a good fit for risk managers, traders, procurement and upper management who want to learn about the 2019-2020 dairy market. Also for dairy producers, farmers, food processors and dairy manufacturers and indeed food service companies. INTL FC Stone is holding its 11th annual dairy seminar in Dublin uh, this September 5th and 6th in connection with its long-term partners DEX Exchange and CQG. We've almost full capacity again this year for the popular conference. Uh, it's one of the best attended seminars INTL FC Stone hosts worldwide, I guess. And what kind of things will people that are at the event get to experience? At the seminar, we always endeavour to deliver education, particularly on risk management and how futures, OTC and option products can be utilised. This seminar will help those who are just finding out about the topic of risk management and how they can use it to the benefit of their company for both its customers and the company's profitability. The seminar is also aimed at those who are more adept in the use of risk management tools and want to try and learn about the new developments. We're hosting a pre-seminar drinks reception at the Conrad Hotel in Dublin on Wednesday the 4th from 6pm to 8pm, where you can also register for the conference. All are invited to attend and uh, enjoy some cocktails or or Guinness uh, in its own hometown. When we commence on the 5th with the more basic educational module of the conference uh, from 8.30 to 12.30, it will be hosted by Charlie Highland and John Lancaster from INTL FC Stone. This is well worth attending if you are a beginner in risk management, and even if you are not, it will be an opportunity to reinforce details you may have forgotten. Uh, Nate Donny, who is a director of Dairy Market Intelligence for INTL FC Stone based in the US, Uh, begins our seminar with a global dairy market outlook and will subsequently be joined by some international customers in a panel discussion on what is driving dairy markets globally at the moment. Charlie Highland um, then will present and discuss uh, on the challenges of basis risk and, and, and how it can be managed, particularly in the use of financial tools and derivatives. Uh, we'll then follow up from last year's highlight discussion, I guess, on, on farmer management programs uh, from different parts of the globe. Panel discussion on how they are progressing, issues, changes, opportunities uh, with such programs. And having been to the one last year, it doesn't end when it ends, I guess. Uh, about 5.30 to 6pm, we plan to adjourn uh, the discussion in the seminar room and continue casual discussions at the bar. This will be followed by dinner and drinks and based on previous seminars will go on till the early hours of the morning. But this has proven to be an important part of the seminar where attendees get the chance to network and other dairy participants all along the supply chain here in Europe and more globally. It is also where we see a unique aspect of an industry where colleagues share their experiences in dairy risk management and offer advice and information and helpful tips that help companies improve their skills and knowledge. And what can we expect on the second day? Uh, we get a presentation by Peter Blogg from the EEX Exchange, our long-term sponsor and partner. And of course, the main uh, exchange for dairy trading in Europe. On what role they have to play, I guess, in the, in the world of risk management. Uh, Conor Mulvihill then from uh, the IDIA, 
who was one of our stars uh, from last year's programme where he presented on Brexit, is back again. Not so much for Brexit this time, uh, although given its prominence uh, in the market, he will give a brief overview update. But he will be more focused this year on the other political decisions on tariffs, trade agreements, etc., and how they will affect the dairy business. Uh, then we will have a presentation uh, from probably one of the longest participants in dairy risk management market here in Europe over the last uh, decade, uh, Zultan Klagovic uh, from uh, Mondelez, who will give us the benefit of his experience from an end user's perspective. This should be very interesting and, and, and also very useful for, for a lot of the attendees of the conference. We then have uh, Professor, Professor Frederick Leroy from Avery University in Brussels, uh, he will give his thoughts on evolving uh, consumer trends around environmental pressure and non-dairy alternatives and how he sees this developing for the dairy market. We then finish uh, with an overview for myself on the new innovations we are planning for the dairy market in relation to risk management tools. And everybody gets away um, at lunchtime to catch their flights and be at home for Friday evening with family and friends. wonder how many times the word Brexit will come up during those two days. For those interested in attending, if you're listening to this podcast via our website, there's a link on the podcast page for more information or to register. And if you enter the discount code Dairy Reporter, they charge you double. No, not really. And now, as always, here's Liam again, only this time with his weekly look at the global dairy markets. It was a good week uh, for butter bulls, uh, with finally a change in the pattern of a stable week followed by another drop the following week. Uh, this week, we got a strong rally, and bulls who had been claiming that the tightening of the bases for the likes of the Irish and Polish butter against the Dutch, Belgian, German uh, sourced butter uh, was cause for the bears to watch out. Even though milk-producing conditions continue to be very favourable in comparison to the last two years, uh, we had September butter up from about uh, 34 50, 75 level to 3600. Quarter four was also on song up about 100 euros to 37.50, and uh, quarter one uh, joining the party at 3800 up about 100 euros also. Uh, Skimmel powder had a relatively quiet week, uh, but if you had to give a direction, I guess you'd say it was softer as international trade issues continued to weigh on prices really. Also, there was, um, there was some forgiveness in the market with the newfound vigour in butter prices, I guess. Uh, September skimmel powder was flat at around 21.70, quarter four slightly lower to 21.70, and quarter one uh, completing the softness down about 10 euros to the 21.90 level. Whey uh, took its cue really from butter was up around 20 euros to the 6.80 level. Great, thanks Liam as always, and we'll talk to you again next week. INTL FC Stone provides risk management and margin hedging programs and services, as well as OTC hedging tool and M&A advisory services to the global dairy industry. And that's it. No idea who's lined up for next week yet. I may have to go into one of the fields near the house and interview a cow. Problem with that is that the sheep keep interrupting. But we will be here next week, all being well, and I hope you are too. Have a great long weekend if you have a holiday on Monday, as some people do. And if not, have a great week anyway. And thanks for listening. 